It's exam time, which has had me thinking about my time in secondary school, GCSEs, ASs, A-levels, and some of my favourite teachers. My favourite teacher of all, without a shadow of a doubt, was my maths teacher. And one of the things that I remember my maths teacher teaching us as a class that still sticks in my mind to this day has got nothing to do with maths. Well, sort of. It's to do with counting. Um, but one of the things that he taught us was the longest word in the English language. Lots of people think that anti-disestablishmentarianism is the longest word in the English language. Well, it's not far off. It's 28 letters, it's 12 syllables long, but it's not the longest. Discounting all your sort of your medical words and chemical elements that are built up uh, and the words constructed that way. The actual longest word in the English language is this. Flocky, knocky, nihilipilification. 29, yeah, that's easy for you to say. 29 letters long. And it's a word that actually means attributing no value to something. Having this attitude of just sort of blasé, thinking that everything is sort of worthless. They're long words and they're difficult words to say. We've got our own version in Welsh, don't we? We know the longest place name in Britain. You know the story about the Englishman who was travelling. Travelling on the railways up in North Wales, stepped off onto the platform, saw that big sign that stretched the whole length of the platform, rushed over to the nearest restaurant that he could find, burst in through the doors, asked the person working there, can you please, can you please say the name of the place that we're in and do it slowly, do it slowly because I'm not from around you. And the person working there stops what they're doing, looks this Englishman straight in the eye and says, Burger King. Okay, the truth is, I do know how to say but the joke is that they're in a Burger King. Okay, that's another difficult thing to say, isn't it? Um, Elton John famously sang that the hardest word to say is sorry. And that rings true in many of our experiences, in many of our lives, doesn't it? That admitting our own guilt, swallowing our pride, confessing that we are the ones that are in the wrong, that we need to seek forgiveness from someone, can be really, really difficult. But today, as we carry on through the book of Acts, we're going to be considering perhaps the most difficult phrase for any of us to say in our lives. Four words long, and it goes like this. Your will be done. Your will be done. One of the, if not the most difficult phrases for any of us to say. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 21. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went aboard and set sail, and after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. 
After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus, where we were greeted by the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been with them for a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, that's Luke, and all the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, why are you weeping? Why are you breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and we said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. The background to that passage is Paul. If you remember in chapter 19, while he was still in Ephesus, he shared that the Spirit of God was causing the Word of God to flourish, and in his own spirit, Paul had in mind to travel first to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. Then later in Acts chapter 20, where we were last week, Paul, during his farewell speech to those same Ephesians, the Ephesian elders, through tears, said this. And now, compelled by the Spirit of God, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, in the, every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I do not consider my life worth, the, worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, that background to what we've just read in Acts 21 makes perhaps Luke's description a little bit odd to our ears. If it was indeed the Spirit of God who had birthed in Paul this desire in his heart, first of all to head to Jerusalem and then on to Rome, the ends of the earth, if it was the Spirit of God who was compelling him onwards, spite of what lay ahead, why is it that we're told that first the disciples entire, through the Spirit, urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem? And then in Caesarea, when they're joined by Ag Agabus, the prophet, who had already been introduced to us in the book of Acts, when he revealed about the famine that would come and lay siege to the Jerusalem church, why is it that he's described as coming and taking Paul's belt, tying his own hands and feet together and saying, it's the Holy Spirit that's saying in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Why is it that Luke confesses what when they heard this, he and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem? Why is it that the Spirit seems to be pulling people in two different directions? Paul compelled to head to Jerusalem. And these disciples, this prophet, Luke himself, begging Paul to go the other way. All apparently fueled by the Holy Spirit. 
Why is it that there seems to be one message about Jerusalem, about hardship that lies there, but two so very different responses? Well, it's because that phrase is one of the most difficult for us to say, your will be done. See, Paul and his response, I think, shows us that it isn't simply knowing what God's will is that matters, but it's yielding to that will. Paul responds to them, begging him not to go. Why are you weeping? Why are you breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Then, and only then do Luke and the others declare the Lord's will be done. Your will be done. You think about it, it's odd, isn't it? It's odd because we're used to that expression. We're used to that phrase, your will be done. It's something that we've been taught to say and to pray by Jesus himself in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. It's something through the Lord's Prayer that we teach our children to say, don't we? School assemblies, Sunday schools, at home, around the dinner table, your will be done. And yet it is so, so hard. To know God's will is one thing, but to yield to it is something different. I'd go as far as to say it's a battle that each of us face each and every day to submit ourselves, to yield ourselves to his ways and to his will. Usually because it goes against our better judgment. Of course the disciples, of course Luke, of course others wanted Paul to avoid Jerusalem. If that is what's going to happen, if he's going to be bound, if he's going to be handed over, if Paul is certain that he's going to face hardship and opposition, why on earth would you go up? Why on earth would he be willing to submit himself to that? These people loved Paul. These people cared for Paul. These people cherished what he had done and what he might do amongst them. They were, they were thrilled when he was there and available to teach, to encourage, to pork, to prod, to provoke them onwards in their, their journey, onwards in their walk with Jesus. In their minds, in, 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 their, in their reasons, in their hearts even, their desire was for Paul to be with them. As we'd seen when he was with the Ephesian elders, they wept because they knew that they wouldn't see him again. In their hearts, in their minds, their desire is for Paul to be with them and for Paul to be continuing his ministry. See, so often for us to say, your will be done, it means in opposition to our will. Your will, Father, to be done as opposed to the things that we would have us do or to happen in our world around us. We can all come up with bright ideas, great outcomes, things that we want to be, our life, our circumstances, our tomorrow, our next week. We can all think of things that we want for one another and for people that we love. Our will be done is really our natural response. And there's, there's nothing particularly shocking or revolutionary about that. But his will being done, his will at the expense of our will being done, 
It's a difficult thing to say, isn't it? It's a difficult thing to go along with because God's ways are not often the easiest ways, but they are most certainly the best ways. We can see that when we consider the life of Jesus in his ministry, in his movings with his disciples. How often was it that the folks like Peter declared, I will never leave you. That Peter took out his sword and cut off the soldier's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus said, no, no, Peter, not your way, but his way. As Jesus, knowing what lay before him, wrestled in prayer with the will of God. He prayed, didn't he? Your will be done. There are a million scenarios. There are a million circumstances. There are a million outcomes connected with the will of God that we simply wouldn't choose. But when we're brought through to the other side, when we see the goodness of it all, so many of us would say we wouldn't have it any other way. No one would choose to head to Jerusalem. No one would choose to head towards the cross. No one would choose to suffer and to die, an innocent man in the place of of the guilty. And yet Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured it all. That's what we'll read soon in the letter to the Hebrews. Jesus set his face resolutely towards that suffering, that cross, because he knew what it was all about. I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Your will be done. God's ways are not often, not usually the easiest, but they are most certainly the best. Here it is, God's will that Paul would journey to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem on to Rome, that he would be in those places and be able to declare the majesty, the glory, the goodness, the grace, the love of God in Jesus in those special places. Not the easiest, but most certainly the best. Here's the thing with learning to yield to God's will, learning to say your will be done, not my will be done. It does get easier with practice. You see, with practice, with entrusting ourselves to God, will come more and more opportunities, spheres in which God has proven himself and his will to be the best. As we practice this, as we we yield ourselves in small ways, into greater ways, into God's will, it will become easier. That is not to say it will ever become easy in our lives, but it will become easier. You know, I can think of stories, testimonies of folk within our own church, who through darkness, storms, toils, troubles, sufferings, they've come out the other side and they would tell you, They would tell you with serious faces that God's ways are not the easiest, but God's ways are the best. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul prayed so often for the churches that we we have his letters that he wrote to. Why he prayed for them, that one, that they would know God's will, but two, that they would live God's will. Paul wasn't satisfied for people just to know about God or know what God had planned in their lives and around them. 
but that they would live in accordance with those things too. I wonder how easy you find it to say your will be done. It is a battle. It is a struggle to yield control, to yield authority, to yield safety into someone else's hands. We're told, aren't we, by the world that we live in, to, to grab life by the horns, to seize our own destiny, to, to plough our own path. Get your head down, work hard, whatever you desire, whatever feels right to you, you can achieve it and get rid of anyone else in your life that would have it another way. That's the, that's the environment in which we exist. But God's ways, not often the easiest, are most certainly the best. The believer should, like Christ, like Paul here, like these disciples finally come to, a place where they can say, the Lord's will be done. But what about when it seems like God's will is being undone? Because it's all very well and, and good having this sense, knowing what it is that God is doing or, or, or would do through us and in us and around us. In specific ways, like Paul here, but in more broad and general ways. We know that God desires that all people be saved. And yet it would appear to us in Wales today that very few are. We know God's will, but it feels like it's being undone. What happens then? Well, if we carry on reading in Acts chapter 21 and Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 23, we see that at many times it does feel like this specific revealed will of God about Paul and his proclaiming Jesus seems to be being undone. In Acts chapter 21, Paul arrives with the other disciples in Jerusalem and at first he's warmly received. He reports to them everything that's been happening amongst the Gentile churches. And when they heard this, verse 20, it says that they praised God. Stupendous. There he is, sharing about how God is at work, how, how the Spirit is, is manifesting the reality of what Christ has achieved amongst all of these people, and they praise God. But immediately they know that a storm is brewing. There are rumours circulating around the city about Paul, lies about what he's been teaching and what he's been doing. And so they hatch this plan. They hatch this plan to calm things down, that Paul would, to appease those people who might seek to harm him or to undermine him or to imprison him or even to kill him, that he would go and he would partake in some old-fashioned Jewish purification ceremonies. Remember, Paul is a Jew after all, and he's got no problems with Jewish people carrying on their customs very much got a problem with them insisting on those customs being carried out for salvation or forcing those onto people who are not the people of Israel. He's got no problems with Jewish folk, you know, entering in and doing them and carrying on with them. So they put their brains together. They hatch this plan of how they can calm things down, how they can placate the mobs and the crowds that they anticipate developing. And yet it's to no avail. Some Jews, it says, from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him and they're shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. 
If you truly belong to God, help us. This is the man. This is the one who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, against our law, against this very temple. Besides that, he's brought Greeks into the temple. He's defiling our holy place. They said that because they'd previously seen two folks with him and assumed that Paul had brought them into the temple. It says this, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. They seized Paul, they drag him out of the temple. The temple gates are immediately shut and they plan, they prepare to kill Paul. Now remember what Paul understood the will of God to be in his life, that he would go and he would face opposition in Jerusalem. But more than that, he would from there go to Rome to proclaim, to declare in that focal point in this Roman Empire, the good news about Jesus. And it seems like now that all of that is being undone, that it isn't just being bound and handed over that's happening to Paul, it's his life being taken from him. What about when we've yielded ourselves to God's will, it feels like it's being undone, that it won't come to fruition. What do we do then? So much for first to Jerusalem and then to, to Rome and to the ends of the earth. Paul has proven himself willing to suffer. But now, how can God's will come about? There's, there's one thing to, to learn to say, your will be done. And there's another battle to be fought in trusting that his will will be done. This is the thought that has captured me this week as I've been preparing, is that God is his own guarantor. God is his own guarantor. He's the one who speaks his truth, his will. He's the one who declares his purposes. And ultimately, he's the one who makes sure that they are met. He is the one who delivers on these things. See, Paul and James and others, they plotted, they'd reasoned, they'd, they'd sort of tried to figure out how they could make it so that Paul could be in Jerusalem and then leave and go on to Rome. And now it all feels like it's spinning out of control. But it's God. It's God who guarantees his own words. Because as this crowd grabs hold of Paul, as they drag him out of the temple, as a riot starts to erupt again, as they're preparing to kill Paul for the false things that they're saying about him, news reaches the Roman commander in the city. And the Roman commander intervenes. You read through chapters 21, 22, 23, you'll see that not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, this Roman commander rescues Paul's life from the rage and the plotting and the scheming of these people. And more than that, by the end of the chapter, this is what we read, that this Roman commander called two of his centurions and ordered them this, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote this letter to go with him. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, 
greetings. This man who was being handed over to you was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and I rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with a question about their own law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Then I was informed of a plot. A plot to be carried out against this man. So I've sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present their case against him in front of you. So the soldiers carried out their orders. They took Paul during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. And learning that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get you. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that these people would expend these resources just to save Paul's life. And when it seems like God's will is being undone, brothers and sisters, we should have the faith to trust that God will bring about what he has commanded. This is actually the beginning of the journey that will indeed lead Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. No more making his own plans, no more having to board this ship to go there, to go there. Now he's in the hands of the Romans and he's going to be passed from one person to the next until he arrives at Rome. And we see in this, this wonderful truth that what God has said, he will bring about. But again, that's a battle, isn't it? It's a battle for you. It's a battle for me. It's a battle for all of us. Because so often, not only is it ourselves that is saying we don't want God's will to be done. But when we've yielded to that, when we've submitted to that, the world around us can conspire and scream and make it seem to us as if God's will cannot be done. But this is the power of God. This is the trustworthiness of God. That what he says, he delivers. It reminded me of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 has got a particular verse in it, and I'm going to read the whole chapter to you now. A particular verse to it that, that, that really spoke uh, to me, that really came into my mind as I was contemplating this passage. But the whole chapter is worth reading because it's just a wonderful chapter about what God has declared and how trustworthy he is. This is what Isaiah chapter 25 says. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what will not satisfy Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches of faith. Give you, come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not 
and nations you do not know will come running to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their sort. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. To our God, for he will freely pardon. What a wonderful invitation. What wonderful promises. Then God says this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. My will higher than yours. My thoughts, my purposes higher than yours. And just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, they make it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but I will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And what's the result of this? Of this wonderful offer that God gives of his purposes, his ways, his wills, his thoughts being declared and being enacted. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. All the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Your will be done. Something for us to yield ourselves to. Something for us to learn about. Something for us to trust in. Brothers and sisters, the more that we do it, the more that we will be convinced that God's will is the best way and that God will accomplish that which he has declared. We, we're fortunate people that we sit where we do in human history and salvation history and we have all of this back catalogue of God's will being done, of God's will producing joy and fullness in people's lives, that Christ has come, the rescuer, the promised one has come and stood in our place, has died and has risen to life again, has ascended to the most highest, heavenliest, glorious seat, and will come again to make everything new. It doesn't mean that it's easy, easy to understand God's will. It doesn't mean that it's comfortable to yield to God's will. It doesn't mean that it's a certain thing for us to trust in God's will, but brothers and sisters, surely that is where we should be aiming to be a people who know God more, to know more of what he wants and is doing in our lives, to cherish his ways more than our own ways, even if they seem more difficult. And when it doesn't appear that they're coming to fruition, as Jesus's disciples scatter because it feels like the rescuer has been conquered and defeated, to trust that God will accomplish those things that he said that he will do. It isn't easy. We need to learn to pick our battles. But this is a battle that we should fight. This is something that we should strive to do. 
to learn his will, to yield to that will and to trust the will of God. Father, we ask that you would help us, folks who have our own desires, our own ideas, our own pathways mapped out. Lord, to know what life should be like, could be like, will be like, because of who you are and what you've done. None of our lives are separate from you and your goodness and your kindness and your grace to us in Jesus. And yet we plan and we prepare and we prioritise as if you weren't who you are, as if Christ hadn't done what he has done. Help us to learn your will. More than that, help us to be willing to submit, to yield to your will, to actually pray along with Christ your will be done. And Lord, when it seems like things are going the wrong way, help us to trust that you are the guarantor of your own words, that what you have stated you will accomplish, that your word does not go out from you and to return empty, but like the rain and the snow from the heavens, it waters the lands and it produces its fruit. Lord, help us to be a people who trust that even through the darkness, morning is coming in you. By your spirit, Lord, help us to fight, help us to battle, help us to learn in this direction so that we might live in your will, that we might trust you more and more and that through it all that there would be joy for us and renown for you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.